Welcome, everybody, to Dimensions of the Heart. Three hour with breaks exploration of practices of loving kindness and compassion. This topic was voted by members of the Guru Viking Meditation Club, which meets every Wednesday. We'll start off with a, I'll give you a short talk just to set some context and explain what the techniques we're going to be doing uh, today. And after that, we'll do a bit of a short practice, which is a foundational practice really, uh, to get us uh, geared up for the main meditation session. So after that short practice, we have a break and then we'll have our main practice period. And then we have another break and then we have Q and A. That's the plan. As Robert Burns said, the best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry, but that's the basic idea. All right, and you know, this, this topic of dimensions of the heart, of, of loving kindness and compassion and practices of the heart is a theme that's present in almost all of the world's mystical traditions, religions, cultures, so much we could draw from and so much we could refer to we're spoiled for choice in terms of the technique techniques we could we, we might apply so naturally we're going to take a selection from that greater whole and it's modular so even though I, we'll stack several techniques in a way that sort of makes narrative sense so you can follow them through uh in a way that each links to the other and it has a certain makes sense in that way but equally you could take portions out of what we're going to do as a sort of modular way and just take this little part and use that as a practice there's lots of little standalone practices in other words that we'll be doing that are strung together to make a whole session so it's kind of quite a good menu for you uh -huh. so this is uh dimensions of the Heart, exploring practices of loving kindness and compassion that's me in that picture don't i look cheerful don't i look radiant with compassion and love well not all is as it seems and there's a point here of what i'm making for a start that's not my actual heart in that picture uh, use graphics program to put that on there secondly those are not designer sunglasses they're also an image I've put on top uh, in, in order to enhance, if such a thing were possible, my already so cool appearance. Similarly, these uh, red rays that are coming off me and implying a sort of mystical radiance, if you want, is, uh, is also added in post-production. And the point here is that while we're going to be doing practices that are, if you want, you could say their goal or part of their goal, part of the operation is to generate or create uh, feelings and inner states of positive emotion like love and compassion. And there's some others which we'll see as we, as we go on with this little bit of talk. It's not necessarily the case that while you're learning them and practicing them, you'll feel those states. You don't have to feel good in other words. And this sort of leads on to how I learned these things. Uh, I learned them from this guy, Shinzen Young. Shinzen Young, I've had a few uh, meditation teachers in, uh, in my life, but Shinzen Young's 
it's pr probably the most influential one. It's certainly the one I've spent the most time with. He's an American meditation teacher whose initial uh, ordination was in Shingong, Japanese Vajrayana. He also did extensive training in Zen and both Mahasi and Ubukin lineages of Vipassana, as well as several other things. Um, and when I learned these, the, the, the specific techniques we're going to be doing today, I learned from him. And he does them actually uh, at, right before dinner time. So in these meditation retreats, I'm sure you've, many of you have been to them before, you meditate all day basically, right? And so, but you have meal breaks and the longest scheduled sit of the day, sometimes people do sit longer voluntarily, but the long, longest scheduled sit of the day is 90 minutes that leads up to, it's 4.30 to six. Uh, and six is where you have your dinner. And you now after a few days, your knees are sore, you're feeling a little bit miserable, maybe just hungry, you want dinner, you want, you know, don't care about enlightenment anymore, you just want some dinner. Around 20 minutes before the end of that sit, Shinzen will ring the bell and you think it's time to go and get dinner, but no, it's not. It is in fact time to do the, some of the techniques we're going to be doing today. In that last 20 minutes, he cues, it's the only time actually in the, in the main meditation hall, he cues a technique and he'll cue something from this sort of family of techniques. And we do it right then at the end of the longest sit, right before dinner, which is probably one of the least conducive times to feel good. <laughs> Better time might be with, um, after dinner when you're satiated and feeling very happy and so on. But instead he does it there. And there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. Um, one of them though that I noticed is that trading under adverse conditions is actually not necessarily, I mean, subtly adverse conditions, slightly adverse conditions is not a bad thing. For the first, several years really i didn't couldn't really feel anything what i could do though was follow the technique and that's what i recommend you do some of you may be coming in stressed out or you don't come in you're coming in not feeling very good in a good mood or your circumstances are not great and you think gosh am i going to be able to feel good necessarily maybe not but something you can do is you can pay attention to and hone and refine the particulars of the technique the operation of the technique in other words you can create a good structure with your technique, creating a container. And then the positive feeling will flow into that container or not. Uh, you can't really force it. In fact, if you sit there and uh, try to force yourself to feel good like that, sometimes all that pressure and forcing will itself block any good feeling. Too much effort uh, in a way can obscure that. So really your main job, if you want, especially at the learning stage where you're learning how it all works, is just to, as best you can, work on getting the technique nice, it's, uh, well implemented. And that creates a certain structure that the, the sort of states, the states, the positive states that we're trying to cultivate, which themselves are a means to an end, can uh, fill. And it, I, I must say though, that after practice and so on, after a fair, fair amount of time, I did find, oh yeah, I could access actually the, so those states. And the good thing is because I learned under slightly adverse conditions, the technique was is a bit stronger it's a bit more resilient uh, you're not we're not only practicing for when things are good we're also practicing for when things are difficult and life can sometimes be difficult so there's shinzen and i all right so a quick uh 
tour through the sensory system, those of you who were here last month at Entangle and Be Free, will, we went into this in great deal of depth. We're not going to go into it in any near that amount of depth today. Just a quick review, really. And for those of you who are new, this will be enough information for you. So there's different ways you might divide the sensory system. That is to say, the way you experience the world inside and outside. And this is one particular way, in and out. You can have see out. See out is what you see out of your eyes. You can see the screen now, for instance. See in, that's a television screen, is your inner visual space, your mind's eye. If, you, if I asked you to imagine your front door, that's the place that you'd see it, so to say, would be in your mind's eye, that's see in. Hear out is what you can hear out of your ears, like my talking. Here in, we have a head with musical note inside of it. That's because herein is your inner auditory space. It's the place when you get a song stuck in your head that it plays. Or it's also the place where you have uh, self-talk. Feel out is the physical sensations of the body, physical body sensations like your bottom on the cushion or clothing on your skin. And feel in is the bodily component of emotional experience. And sometimes it's difficult uh, and unclear for people to distinguish between feel out and feel in. And the way I tend to explain it is if you get a hug from somebody you really like, the physical pressure of the arms around you, the body-to-body -body contact, the squeeze is feel out. And the emotional response, the rosiness in the chest, perhaps, that sort of bodily response, emotionally speaking, is feel in. If you get a similar hug from someone you don't like, the physical part of the hug is the same. The pressure of the arms around you, the squeeze, the body-to-body -body contact, that's feel out. That's the same. But the difference is the bodily response emotionally. Maybe your stomach kind of crunches or you feel a kind of contraction or unpleasant feeling there. That's because you don't like him. And so the emotional response is somewhat different. So there we have the same feel out, but two different flavors of feeling from the same act. All right. And when we're talking about the practices that we're working with today, we're working in this area, the inner system, the inner system. And sometimes it's said that one's inner state is a little bit, could be compared to a rope. A rope, of course, is woven from multiple strands. And similarly, your inner state could be said to be woven from multiple strands. Some, active, some content happening in inner see-in, maybe something happening in the hear-in, maybe something happening in feel-in. And these different sensory events weave together to create the experience inside. For instance, if you're stuck in traffic, you may feel emotional distress in the body. You might be hearing inside your head, I'm gonna be late, I'm gonna be late. And maybe you see inside of your head, traffic stretching in all directions. This is all weaving together, talking to each other, agitating each other, forming this rope, which is the inner state of being distressed because you're stuck in traffic. And so very often, actually, lots of meditation methods are designed or oriented towards deconstructing that, or unraveling the rope, deconstructing the strands of the inner experience, saying, oh, that's what we did last month, actually. Saying, oh, okay, there I can see my inner visual activation. Ah, there's some inner auditory activation. Ah, that's the emotional activation. Unraveling them in a certain sense, which creates space and can produce insight into the way in which the inside works. 
very often if we're in a state of distress, for example, or a happy state, we get the sort of general sense, we get the feeling of the rope, but not the individual strands. Or maybe you have strong emotional reaction, but you don't notice that there's also inner visual and auditory aspects as well. And so doing an inner sensory tour, for example, one begins to identify and tease apart these strands. And that is, uh, if you want, deconstructive approach to the inner experience. But when we know that inner experience is constructed like a rope from many strands, and we deconstruct that and we see that, we can actually reverse engineer it to deliberately produce or generate positive states in a similar way. Here, for example, is uh, this little device here that's weaving the hair. It's a little bit like our meditation techniques we're gonna be learning today. We learn to generate positive content in the inner system. We basically make our own strands and we weave them together. And what we're ending up with is a rope of our choosing. So we're using essentially the inner system in order to achieve the state experiences that we're looking for. That's the basic idea. And there are many, many different ways to approach this process. And we're going to be working with these so-called Brahma Viharas. At least that's part of what we're going to be doing. Brahma Vihara, literally divine abode, sometimes translated as sublime attitudes or the four immeasurables are four attitudes you want if you want four attitudes states that one can cultivate positive states and i should emphasize that these brahma viharas are it's from uh, theravadan buddhism from a document called the Visuddhi maga by buddha gosha a relatively late document uh, but they appear in all different strains of Buddhism. Buddhism, for instance, is quite broad. And there are really many different approaches within it. And the sequencing of these is different. The way that they define them is slightly different in different schools. The way they apply them is slightly different in different schools. So just bear in mind that this is one way of looking at it. And this is one, the Brahma Vihara is one way of looking, this is one way of looking at the Brahma Viharas within Buddhism, which itself is one way of looking at the themes of love and compassion within the world mystical traditions. So it's very much in that broader context. You don't need to be a Buddhist to do it, as you'll see. I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> many of you are Buddhists on this call, I know, but many of you aren't, and I'm not either. And it's, uh, it's not really uh, required to do these Brahma Viharas. Now, what are the Brahma Viharas? Well, here they are. First of all, loving kindness, or metta, maitri, Champa. So I've got here the Pali, that's P, the Sanskrit, Maitri, and T for the Tibetan. I know some of you are work in those languages in your own practices, so it's there for your enjoyment. Compassion or Karuna. It's the same in Pali and Sanskrit, actually. Empathetic joy, Mudita. I'll define these in a moment. Equanimity. Upeka or Upeksha. So loving kindness. And once again, like I mentioned, 
you can gloss these in different ways. So I'm going to give you a functional way of looking at it that, that'll be fit for our purposes. Loving kindness is sort of well-wishing in a way, uh, wishing well on someone that they might be happy, uh, they might have a nice life, be peaceful, etc. Sort of this general friendliness and well-wishing towards a person. Compassion is often defined as feeling or the ability to feel another person's suffering as your own. In other words, an ability to relate to or empathize with or sympathize with the suffering or difficulties of another person. But that's not where it stops. It also has the sense of action. So it's not an empathy or a sympathy from a distance. It has the sense of being generating action. It's got an active quality to it. In fact, in the Indian and Tibetan tradition, the late Indian tradition and the Tibetan tradition, there's a female, there's a depiction, a sort of icon, if you want, of a female deity called Green Tara. She's green and her name is Tara. And she represents this aspect of active compassion, sort of symbol for it in a way. And she has one of her legs is, rather than sitting in a meditation pose, say, she's got one of her legs is extended. And that's said to symbolize her readiness to jump into action, to be available to assist in that sense. So compassion has that sense of action, not just empathy or sympathy from a distance. And empathetic joy, sometimes called sympathetic joy, is the opposite of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is when you take, it's a German word that means when you take enjoyment in the misfortune and failures of your enemies, or even better, your friends. That sense of when you see somebody really screwing something up or making a mistake and you think, ha ha, that's good. <laughs> I don't feel like such a, such, I feel a bit safer now. I don't feel like such a loser here. There's a sort of kind of sense of enjoying see someone else fail. Relief, maybe. <laughs> That's a sort of schadenfreude. And mudita is the opposite of that. So empathetic joy is, is taking enjoyment in the successes or good fortune of other people. Basically. That's what that is. Equanimity is another one of these terms that means different things in different contexts. Here, it has a few different uh, shades of meaning really, but here it's sort of the sense of treating people the equally or even-handedly. Sometimes it can mean a kind of ability to feel both the good and the bad. Of course, you prefer the good and rather not the bad. But the degree to which you have equanimity is the degree to which you can feel those things without push or pull. And equanimity in this case is so it's something more to do with treating people in a certain way, evenness of attitude towards people. And it actually has another implication as well of understanding the limits of your well-wishing. And you'll see what I mean by that later. But it's all very well and good. As any of you who has ever had anyone in your family or a close associate who you care about, maybe have an addiction or go off the rails in some sort of a way, you'll know that it's possible to really, really care a lot about someone and try and help them, but you can't. So there's a certain sense in which you are limited in your ability to help other people. And equanimity has uh, reflect, as we'll see in a moment, uh, ref equanimity reflects 
has a shade of the meaning of understanding the limitations of our ability to help as well. Something like that. So here's a classic practice, and we'll be actually playing with this today. Here is a meditator, represents all of us. And here the meditator is engaging in a practice of loving kindness to some, of some kind, some sort of compassion practice. And you could think of um, a sort of series of rings like this. And here you can see in the center is the meditator within the first circle. And that represents the, the first step of this practice, which is directing these loving and positive attitudes towards oneself. So initially the meditator works with one's self. And then through the techniques which we're going to learn, one directs the practice outwards to this first layer beyond oneself, which is your friends and people you like, family members, loved ones, etc. Well wishing for them. And anyone who's come from a kind of tradition where you've prayed at all, Christian or Jewish, or Muslim tradition perhaps, where you're sort of praying for people and so on, you'll kind of be primed for this. This is it's quite, it's quite similar in a way. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Then the next layer out, you move on beyond that, is to people who, towards whom you're neutral or ambivalent, could be strangers, people you don't really have a positive or negative association with, just strangers, maybe we meet them every now and then. And then you go beyond that to enemies, naughty people, annoying people. It can actually run the gamut from just slightly irritating people to nemesis, your nemesis, your arch enemy. It's actually recommended when you're learning not to use your, whoever's at the bottom of your list, the worst person, <laughs> you know, because sometimes it can be a little bit strong a little bit difficult to work with. Eventually you can, but it's recommended generally to choose someone a little less full on when you're learning. But you know, it's up to you who you choose when we work with that layer. Then the next layer beyond that is everybody else, all beings like dogs, cats, worms, and aliens. Yeah, really. Dogs, cats, worms, and aliens, even aliens, actually. There are some traditional instructions that talk about beings and other, you know, stars and other dimensions and this sort of thing. We're not going to be focusing too much on the aliens this time, although there's actually nothing to stop you from focusing on the aliens. When we get to that part, you could. The point is, anyway, that it's just everybody else. There's a systematic working from yourself and outwards. So here are these Brahma Viharas again, or divine abodes, literally divine abodes. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And one of the many, many ways in which these are worked with is through the use of certain phrases. Now I mentioned before that we're, our approach is going to be to generate positive content in the inner system strands like strands of string that weave together to form a rope 
and you've got your inner visual, inner auditory, and inner emotional. And there's ways actually to generate positive content in all of those systems and then weave them together. And one of the ways you can generate positive content in the auditory system, that here in if you want, is through repetitive phrases and so on and so forth. And, and actually that's one of the techniques that's used with the Brahma Viharas. They each have a phrase, there are actually many phrases. I've just chosen some here. So for loving kindness, the phrases may, let's say you're doing Somebody else, you'd say, may so-and-so be happy, may so-and-so be peaceful, may so-and-so be safe, may so-and-so live with ease. So you might perhaps visualize them. That's one strand. There are various ways to generate positive emotion, which we'll cover. So you're doing that, that's another strand. And then also you're using inner auditory. You're, you're thinking of them and you're really saying, may so-and-so be happy. You're well-wishing in that way. May so-and-so be peaceful. May so-and-so be safe. May so-and-so live with ease. And you repeat that. Just like weaving a rope, you just continue to generate that positive content. And we know, I think, that a rope is stronger than the individual strands. They start to strengthen each other, actually. That's the effect. The phrase for compassion is, may so-and-so be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May so-and-so be free from the suffering and the causes of suffering. And I think you can perhaps see here that in these phrases, there's already bringing out shades of meaning in these in these words. There's a difference here between what we're thinking about in loving kindness and what we're thinking about in compassion. It's slightly different emphasis. Empathetic joy, mudita. May the happiness and good fortune of so-and-so always increase. May the happiness and good fortune of so-and-so always increase. Remember, empathetic joy is taking pleasure or enjoyment in the happiness and good fortune, in this case, of another person. And then equanimity. So-and-so is the true heir of their karma. So-and-so's happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. Uh, what does this mean? So-and-so is the true heir of their karma. And so-and-so's happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. It means many, many things. As you'll no doubt discover when you start to explore this technique the meanings become actually quite obvious but essentially it's one of the things it does is it recognizes that while you may very much wish someone well or wish them to be free from suffering and you may take a great deal of pleasure in their happiness and good fortune there's a limit to what that well-wishing can do there's a limit to your power. You can't just swoop in and fix things 100%. And actually, they're the heir of their karma. So there's many causes and conditions that have brought about the situation a person might be in. If you think about yourself, there's many causes and conditions, including your own actions, but other causes and conditions that have come together to put you in the situation you're in now. So you're the heir of that karma. Nobody else can live your life for you and in a sense your happiness depends on your actions and not on wishing things to be better <laughs> in other words the way you relate to your situation that's part of your actions how do you relate to challenging and difficult situations what actions do you take etc etc all of these things 
are, in a sense, what happiness could depend on, the way you relate to the situation you're in and what actions you take in that situation. And like I mentioned before, anyone who's ever had a loved one who has engaged in self-destructive behavior or addiction of some sort will know that it can be actually to really have these first three without the fourth one, without the wisdom, to have the compassionate aspects without the wisdom, to understand the limits, is it can be torturous, sort of a burden. So it's not equanimity is not what's sometimes thought of as not feeling anything at all. You just sort of in a gray and dull way, see everything exactly the same. Doesn't matter to you if it's good or bad, not at all. This first three is all about feeling, wishing people to be happy, wishing the less suffering and good fortune. You do, you feel it, but you temper that feeling or contextualize that feeling with, with understanding that there's a limit. And that sometimes things just have to play out the way they play out. So there's something there it also means that when you wish kindness and lack, less suffering and happiness and good fortune on your enemies, for instance, remember that third layer, the enemies or naughty people, irritating people, you're not letting them off the hook. You're not letting them off the hook. They're the true heirs of their karma. Just because you, you know, what you're doing is you're unhooking yourself. You're unhooking yourself. If you are around somebody who is irritating, difficult to be around, triggers you, activates you, and so on and so forth. It can be a little bit like being trapped, trapped in a pattern or a dance of conflict with a person. And sometimes someone can say something to you at work or friends say something to you, you know, a frenemy, I guess, could say something to you, and you can stew on it for hours, days, oh, you think of the perfect thing to say 10 minutes later, something like that. All weekend you're having these conversations with the person, preparing for the next bout or whatever. In a certain sense, they're still on your case, even when they're not there. So the unhooking here is the saying of, well, this person is that person. Their behavior will have consequences. The sort of person that they are is the sort of person they are. That actually, that's up to, that's on them. And that's due to their situation. And in a certain sense, well, there's a limit to how much my well wishes here in my meditation is going to affect, affect them. So you're not letting them off the hook. You're not in a certain sense, letting them off the consequences of their actions, but you're unhooking yourself. When you start to be able to break away or broaden from that narrow perspective of conflict, to be able to recognize, well, they're still human being. They still want to be happy. They still want less suffering. They still want good fortune, just like everyone else. When you're able to broaden out like that, it actually unhooks you from your reactivity, from being on a one track with that person and allows for much more creative and skillful ways to handle the situation, perhaps, but it certainly makes it more pleasant for you. Equanimity does not mean you're passive. that You meditate so much that anyone can do anything to you and you're like a doormat. It's not that. You may have to stand up for yourself. You may have to fight back in some sort of a way. That's fine. But it's to do with your inner relationship. What's happening inside of you? Unhooking yourself from being caught like that inside. And you, the less activated in court you are, the more creative and flexible you can be in your responses 
the more IQ points you get back. Something about conflict can really lower the IQ or lower the range of options. You're stuck on this one thing and you can perhaps deal with the situation more skillfully. And of course, not all situations can be dealt with particularly well. Sometimes you just got to put up with something for a little while. That's certainly the case for all kinds of things, people, sicknesses, etc., circumstances. And so once again, there's still work that can be done on the inside. And that's a lot of what that fourth one is about. We could go on and on and on about all these four in great depth, but this is a gloss, a little bit of a light skimming of the meanings here. I think it'll become even clearer as we start practicing together. The next thing we're going to do is a short little practice that introduces some basic concepts that we're going to need for after the break and then we take a break. So are there any burning or pressing questions? Nope. Okay. Well, let's get started, shall we? Assume the position, the meditation position. <laughs> and you actually, your meditation position, it could be lying down comfortably, could be sitting in a chair, could be sitting on a meditation cushion or a bench. You could even be standing in place or walking. This is a short meditation, but afterwards, after the break, it's our main session. And if it gets stiff or sore, you can always move. Just your position. Okay. So let's begin. I hit the, the bowl here three times to start. And the instructions begin, and then at the end, I hit it once. Good. And settling into whichever position you've chosen for this period of practice. For this technique, your eyes could be open or closed. Sometimes people find it easier to work with the inner system with the eyes closed, but actually it's not compulsory, it's your choice. So now we'll begin weaving the strands of inner experience into a rope of our choosing. And we'll start with feel in. The bodily component of emotional experience. Some people can just turn on good feeling, emotionally like turning on a faucet or a tap. If you're one of those people, you can do that. It's also the case that sometimes you may find or notice that there's already good feeling in the body. 
in which case it's fine to tune into that. There are also means and methods to invite good feeling in the body. There are many ways to do that. And the one we're going to try now is a smile. So smiling, even if it's a fake smile. We usually smile when we feel good. So sometimes smiling can trigger or invite good feeling. Good, and so if good feeling is there, tuning into that and continuing, smiling. It's not unusual, especially when learning, for positive emotions to not be very accessible, almost as if inviting them creates the opposite. So you may find instead you have sort of neutral feeling or maybe even degree of negative emotion. And that's fine. Just let the neutral or negative emotions go on in the background. And focusing on the muscular event of the smile. That is to say the forming of the smile, the sensations created in the face and the mouth from smiling so that even if you don't feel good there's still productive work you can do honing refining working on the particulars of the technique getting a good structure of the technique so that you're creating a good container that positive emotion can come into so whether you're feeling good or neutral or negative there's still productive work you can do. So for a couple of minutes, feel good.
Good, and relaxing that. And then turning to your inner visual system. See in. And we're going to deliberately generate positive content there. And how we're going to do that in this case is to Visualize someone you love or care about, someone with whom you have positive emotional associations. It could be a friend, loved one, could be a pet. And forming a, an image or a moving kind of video image of them in your mind's eye. The image might be vivid and clear, or it might be hazy and vague. The image may be stable and continuous, or it might be fleeting, it might even disappear almost as soon as you've created it. If the image disappears, just make it again. You may or may not feel a positive emotional response to the image. At this point, it doesn't matter. The technique here is just to deliberately generate positive content in the inner visual space. If you notice any other sights, sounds, thoughts, or body sensations, just letting them go on in the background. And if you find yourself drawn away by sights, sounds, thoughts, or body sensations, when you notice you've been drawn away, coming back to making the image again. So for a couple of minutes, see good.
Good, it's a training. Eventually, it can become quite easy to turn on positive content in the inner system, like turning on a tap or a faucet. It doesn't always go that way at the beginning. Just applying the technique, acquainting yourself with the method. It's part of learning. Good, and continuing this visualizing, generating, creating positive content in your inner visual space and adding positive inner auditory content in the form of a repetitive phrase, sentence. It could be a word or a phrase or a sentence of blessing or appreciation or well-wishing or gratitude, some kind of word or phrase or sentence relating to the image. And we begin to weave these together as you generate in a visual content. Also repeating that word, phrase or sentence. You might think of two or three different words, phrases, and sentences. Just settling on one. That's good enough for right now. And beginning to weave them together by generating them at the same time.
Good, and adding one more strand to the weave. With a smile, inviting positive emotional content with a smile, even if it's a fake smile. Combining positive inner visual content of your visualization with positive inner auditory content, your word, phrase, or sentence. And then weaving another strand, positive emotion, triggered in this case by a smile. All three at the same time. See good, hear good, feel good, all good. Good. And as we begin to transition out of this period of formal practice into a break, you've got a few options. You could continue this technique sitting through the break formally. Or you could run the technique lightly in the background or dip in and out of it as you're taking care of whatever it is you need to do in the break, sort of informal approach. It's also perfectly okay to completely drop the technique and attend to whatever it is you need to do. It's up to you, they're all good options. Good job, everyone, well done. Okay, so that's the jumping off point. 
and what's going to come next. So let us take a break. So it's 56 past. 57 past now. So let's come back at 7 past, whatever the hour is. So we're in different time zones. So 7 past, whatever hour it is where you are. All right. See you then. Let's begin again. So I see a couple of questions here. Um, uh, Greg is saying, can you mention the schedule for the rest of the time? Yep, we're doing now a practice session, our main meditation session, and then we'll take a break and there'll be a bit of time for Q&A at the end. That's the basic structure. Steve, I have a question. In the meditation, what's the instruction if something other than the good things arises with them? So say there's a sort of a sadness with the loving or with the visual image of the good thing. Yeah. Thank you very much. I can't see your name on the phone, but you don't need to give your name. But I'm just going to call you 151. <laughs> that's what you look like on the, on the thing. Well, one five one. What you do is um, basically it. It a little bit depends. The answer to that on the technique. In the technique we just did, let's say you're trying to generate positive visual content, and you also have other visual content, negative, uh, neutral, whatever other stuff. You just let it go on in the background. It's a little bit like if you're looking at the screen, you're aware of maybe the rest of the room, but you just let the rest of the room go on in the background. And it's true, of course, you might get drawn into that other content in the same way that you'd be looking at the screen, but then you get distracted by something over there in the other part of the room. And when, the, and when you've no noticed you've been distracted, you come back to what it is you're doing. So you would come back to the screen. Or in this case, if you found yourself lost in other kinds of thoughts, or other sensations, dog barking outside something, body sensation when you notice you've been drawn into that you come back to whatever the operation is that you're doing technically speaking so it's definitely the case that you you could have positive coming you could have neutral or negative or you could have a combination um, in that case you just let the other neutral negative go on in the background and emphasize or uh, attend to the positive part from a technical point of view yeah Yo, you're welcome rich is saying you mentioned it might be challenging any more tips for separating and paying attention to feel in? The smile feels very physical out. Yes, the smile is feel out, actually. The feeling of the smile is in the feel out category. We're using it to invite or trigger the possibility of bodily emotional content, which would be the feel in part. In fact, there are whole traditions where they recommend you keep subtle smile throughout the whole practice and that's partly just because it can have a subtle toning effect or sort of coloring effect on the emotional experience sometimes i think it's like a glass of water certain you know styles of meditation you can very still very calm very quiet and if you drop in a little bit of one drop of red food coloring into the water then the whole water quickly becomes hued with a sort of red or pink and it's a little bit like that. Sometimes, especially if the mind and body become very quiet, this is certain styles of meditation where that's done, uh, then that subtle smile can just be like a dropping of food coloring into clear water. And it can begin to hue the emotional body with a pleasant feeling. 
and then that very often is worked with in terms of absorption states janic absorption states or it might be worked with in terms of generating bliss states depending on the tradition some some styles they are actually aiming for those kind of states for all kinds of reasons to do with insight and you know, feeling better and stuff so yeah it is a physical out it's a feel out thing that is hopefully inviting possibility at least of positive inner we're actually going to explore in this next part we're going to explore a couple of different possibilities for what you could ways in which you could hold your body essentially it's a mudra it's a body posture isn't it the smile it's like you're assuming a position in order to make a more conducive inner environment it's basically the idea okay let's go again shall we Okay, good work, everybody. So just settling into whatever position you'd like to choose for this next portion. And bear in mind, you can adjust your position at any time. Good. Settling into whatever position you've chosen for this period of practice. We're going to continue with this weaving and introduce some of the phrases that we saw in the intro discussion. And I'm actually going to put them on the screen for you so you can reference them. So we start in the first layer with yourself. Starting in this first part of the practice with yourself. In terms of your inner visual space, you have several options. You might actually notice that you already have a kind of ongoing inner visual representation of yourself in the room you're in. Even though you've got your eyes closed in the mind's eye, there may be a faint or maybe quite clear sense of your body in the position it's in. You can work with that. You can also generate an image, generating it in the place that your body physically is, but in your mind's eye, or visualizing it in front of you as if you're looking at yourself. Sometimes it's suggested that you could do things like, imagine light, golden light filling the body or radiance in the body. These are all visual representations of the well-wishing that you're sending in this case to yourself so whatever seems useful you can use in that regard and similarly with the body if you can just generate positive feeling great that's not always available and it's not always consistent So sometimes it helps to apply some sort of 
bodily posture to assist or encourage positive emotion could be a smile like we did before could be you put your hand on your chest or your hand on your stomach Just placing your hand on yourself in some sort of a caring way some people it works to have the palms facing up for instance so as you start to visualize yourself positively generating positive content in the inner visual space. Also assuming some sort of physical position to encourage the feel in, positive feeling, whether it's hand on the chest, smile, whatever. And then beginning by repeating the phrase for loving kindness may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I live with ease. Repeating this phrase, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I live with ease. You can use the whole phrase in a row like that. You could choose one or two or you could repeat each phrase three or four times before moving on to the next. Using this phrase to generate positive inner auditory content. Directed towards yourself. Good. You may feel positive, emotion, neutral, negative, or a mix. In any event, you can still work on the particulars of the technique. Learning and acquainting yourself with the structure to create a container. Or these positive states which themselves are a means to an end.
Good. And then moving on to the phrase, for compassion, may I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Repeating in your mind. If you're by yourself, you could even say it out loud. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Good. Moving on to the phrase for empathetic joy or mudita. May my happiness and good fortune always increase. May my happiness and good fortune always increase.
moving on to the phrase for equanimity. I am the true heir of my karma. My happiness depends on my actions and not on my wishes or me. I am the true heir of my karma. Many causes and conditions brought you here in your circumstance. Your happiness depends on your actions and not on your wishes. Good. And taking a moment to close this directing of well wishes to yourself. You might like to take a nod or a bow to close that particular layer some gesture or other, it's up to you. Good, and then moving one layer out to somebody with whom you have positive associations, could be a loved one, friend, Visualizing them. Can be helpful to visualize golden light, suffusing them or glow, positive blessing or good fortune, etc. These are just visual representations of 
the well wishes that you're directing to them. Once again, you have the option of holding your body in some sort of position, arranging your body in some sort of position. That's conducive. Smile. Something like that. And then beginning with the first phrase. May this person be happy. May this person be peaceful. May this person be safe. May this person live with ease. Repeating that. Good. Moving on, may this person be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May this person be free from suffering and the causes of suffering.
Good, and moving on to may the happiness and good fortune of this person always increase. May the happiness and good fortune of this person always increase. One quality that this practice can develop is stamina. If you notice that the feeling is waning, it's natural, expanding, contracting. If you find that's the case, relax. Attend to the particulars of the technique. Let the technique do the work. Creating a structure or container for positive states to inhabit. Good. Moving on to this person is the true heir of their karma. This person's happiness depends on their actions, but not on my wishes for them. doesn't mean that you don't have wishes for them. It just means their happiness depends on their actions and not on your wishes for them.
Good. And then taking a moment to close this particular layer of the practice. Perhaps with a bow or a nod. Good. And then moving on to a person who is neutral, relatively speaking. And here, if you like, you could use the people on the call. I will post the phrases in the chat in case you need them for reference. By all means, you could visualize somebody who is neutral to you and work with them, or you could choose somebody on the grid, and work with them, or you might decide to go through every person in the grid you can see, giving them each a blast of each phrase. So there's some options there. So first of all, may this person be happy. May this person be peaceful. May this person be safe. May this person live with ease. Thank you. 
Good, I'm moving on to the next phrase. May this person be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Good, I'm moving on to the next phrase. May the happiness and good fortune of this person always increase. May the happiness and good fortune of this person always increase.
bird, equanimity. This person is the true heir of their karma. Their happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. Good, and taking a moment to close this particular layer of your practice. Good, and then we have two layers to go. And the last layer is done a little bit differently and quite quickly, actually. So it's sort of one and a bit layers to go, really. Good work so far. So now, choosing someone with whom you have negative associations, perhaps irritant, conflict. It can range from someone with whom you have times of friction all the way to someone who's rather at the bottom of your list. recommended particularly when learning not to choose somebody who's too far down the list but the choice is yours picturing them positively
and beginning with the first phrase. May this person be happy. May this person be peaceful. May this person be safe. May this person live with ease. Good. May this person be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May this person be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Good. 
May the happiness and good fortune of this person always increase. May the happiness and good fortune of this person always increase. Good. This person is the true heir of their karma. Their happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. This person is the true heir of their karma. Their happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. Good. I'm taking a moment to close this 
layer of your practice. Good, and then to the last layer. All beings in all directions. And you might visualize out from you in all directions. People, animals, all kinds of beings. And now in this last layer, we're directing the well wishes in all directions to all beings. And on this occasion, we just repeat each sentence three times and move to the next. So in that way, it's slightly different to the way we did it before. It's just another variation. So first of all, May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be safe. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be safe. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be safe. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May the happiness and good fortune of all beings increase. May the happiness and good fortune of all beings always increase. May the happiness and good fortune of all beings always increase. All beings are the heirs of their karma. Their happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. All beings are the true heirs of their karma. Their happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. All beings are the true heirs of their karma. Their happiness depends on their actions and not on my wishes for them. Taking a moment to close this layer and indeed this arc of your practice. Good, as we transition out of this period of formal practice to a break, you can continue sitting through the break. Formally, you could run the technique in the background while you attend to whatever it is you need to do, or it's fine to also drop the technique entirely. Good work. Good job. That was a long one. Well done. 
Okay, so it's five past. We'll take a 10 minute break and come back a quarter past. And then there'll be time for questions, reports, remarks, etc. So good work. See you in 10 minutes at quarter past. All right, so this is the time for questions. I see there's already something in the chat from Greg. That's cool. So I thought I'd just give you a summary of what we've done so far before we before we go into that questions and things. Um, so we started off with the short talk just to give you a bit of context and to describe the techniques ahead of time. And I think you can probably see now why it why we did that. You've been, you've been exposed to the phrases, you've been exposed to the layers, you already had a heads up really on basically how the technique works and, um, and what we're attempting to do with this weaving of the inner rope. And then we did a 3D loving kindness meditation, that short meditation where we were visualizing someone we had positive associations with and adding some positive phrase and then using the smile in that particular example, that particular occasion, we used the smile to invite the possibility of positive bodily emotion, kind of learning to weave those together. And like I mentioned before, at first, just like when I was telling you when I learned it uh, at Shinzen's retreats, sort of really didn't get very far with it in terms of feeling anything for a number of years, but eventually, quite slow, eventually started to happen. And, you know, as you, as you get more used to it, you get more used to the mechanics of it and so on. Um, it becomes possible to very often turn on positive inner content qu quite readily. Um, then we took a break and came back and we did the Brahma Vihara practice, right? We're starting off with yourself and then going to somebody who's friendly towards you, or you have a friendly feeling and then a neutral person and then an enemy or a frenemy maybe, and then cats, dogs, worms, aliens, all peoples and beings in all directions, in all timelines. <laughs> Timeline two people as well. Anyway, so the whole multiverse, who knows? I don't know what I'm talking about at this point. Okay, so that's, that's uh, what we did. And as you can see, it sort of, it sort of follows a logic. It follows a, a narrative or path, but you could take any of those things out in a modular way. So how might, how might you practice that? Well, you can do any of those modules, any of those components standalone. Totally you can. Um, you could, uh, for instance, do what we did at the end where you just choose yourself or a person or you go through all the layers or some of the layers and you, and you use each phrase, say three times, seven times, something like that. And you just say it in that kind of a way. A good way to keep count of that is to use the fingers of your hand. You know, if you've got your fingers are on your leg or something, you can just curl your finger for one, two, three, four. That's quite good. Five. And then you uncurl it. Six, seven, eight, nine. Ten. That's one way of doing it. It's like a ready-made abacus you've got here on your fingers. Uh, some people like to use malas, you know, those rosaries that you see. Like this. But that's 108 beads. That's an awful lot of Brahma Vihara if you do all four. And so you can also get these other little ones that are like little mala bracelets. They're shorter. Some of you might even have them actually already. So that's another way of counting. And sometimes that um, using it regularly can also work as a trigger. 
can also work as a sort of a tactile use. In a certain sense, we're using the inner visual, inner auditory, and the body position, or sort of the mudra, if you want. Mudra, in this sense, just meaning the way you hold your body, what you're doing with your body. All of these can weave together to uh, work on this technique or work towards this technique, contribute to the technique. So there's really lots of ways you can do it. Uh, yeah, some people do retreats on this and they spend sort of the first week on themselves and then the second week on and so on and so forth. Or you can take just loving kindness and do it for yourself out the layers and then just compassion and so on. I mean, you can, there's endless ways you can combine it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's all I'd like to say about it at the moment. So if you have any questions or comments or ahas or anything, you know what to do. And I'll look now at the questions here in the chat. So Greg is saying, I'm used to practicing a mantra meditation where I can gradually get to a peaceful, semi-blissful state. I've been trying to see how mindfulness meditation is similar or different in order to integrate it into my life. So is it possible? I'm not sure exactly what the final goal of your technique is. What are we hoping to attain? Mm -hmm. That's a very, very cool question. Well, the first thing to say is that we need to define our terms. What's meant by, in this case, mindfulness meditation? It's a word that, you know, can be correctly used in many different contexts, like a lot of words, actually. It depends the context, how you want to use it. So, for instance, I can put my glass on a table or I can table a motion at a meeting. Both of those are correct uses of the word table, but they're, they mean different things. And so mindfulness means different things as well in different contexts. Uh, it has very technical definitions within traditions like Buddhism, for instance, and it has general cultural, culturally used uh, uses that what we think of today. A lot of people, mindfulness is just a synonym for meditation. And in fact, that's how Shinsen uses it. He uses mindfulness just to mean really psycho-spiritual or psycho-spiritual emotional growth practice sort of that sort of thing he uses things a bit a little bit like fitness but for that side of life and similar to that thinking of that analogy if you're used to jogging and you do weight training for instance you might notice when you start to do weight training it doesn't feel like jogging say so, well i'm used to jogging but now i'm doing weight training it doesn't feel like jogging and that's because it's not jogging. <laughs> it's different. And that might be a good thing or a bad thing. You might find that you like what weight training gives you and you supplement the two. You work together. Maybe your main thing is jogging, but once, twice a week, you do a bit of weight training. Uh, you may find that you do a bit of weight training. You think, I just prefer jogging. I just rather just jog. And that's fine. So then you just jog. So if you're doing, say, mantra meditation, the sort of thing that it's commonly taught in styles like transcendental meditation, although that's not the only one, where you, you repeat a mantra, repeat a mantra, and you do get into this really lovely blissful state. That's a kind of meditation. So in the way that we're using the word mindfulness from a Shinzen point of view, or the way I just I just prefer to use the word meditation myself, then it's that's part of the umbrella, the many, many different kinds of techniques. That's one of them. And all meditation techniques have certain things in common. They're developing certain core skills. Uh, but of course, they each have different effects in the same way that jogging and weight training both have certain 
overlapping effects. They have certain things in common. But if you, if you take 10 people and they jog for a year and then take 10 people and they weight train for a year, there's going to be different results specific to the modality that they're using. And that's the case as well. They've actually done very interesting studies about um, uh, studying people who do different kinds of meditations. Because people who do this sort of meditation is the metta bhavana, compassion kind of style of meditation. They're, that has certain effects in the brain, certain effects on the person. Uh, compared to, say, if you're doing focus on breath or you're doing a mantra meditation, which is sort of concentrating, absorbing, dissolving into the repetition of the mantra. Very beautiful kind of practice. Or other people maybe are noting all the sensations that are going along in a kind of Vipassana style or doing body scan. I mean, there's so many different things. Some people are imagining themselves doing, imagining themselves uh, merging with Christ or merging with Chen Rezig or something like that. So many different kinds. And they have different effects. So it's similar. Mindfulness meditation is similar in that you're developing a degree of concentration because you're deliberately directing your attention which you're also doing in mantra you're attending to the mantra it's also similar in the sense that you're likely to develop a core skill of sensory clarity that over time you begin become a little bit more uh, sensorially able to detect more things and clearer let's say about what you're detecting i can go into that a bit more if you like but that's just this is the sort of gloss version and you're generally getting a bit more equanimity in the sense that you're developing a capacity to feel what's going on without push or pull. And that tends to be somewhat universal to all meditation styles to greater or lesser degree. But of course, each meditation style has its pros and cons. Certain meditation styles are prone to imbalance or error in one way. It's not inevitable, but it can happen in the same way that if you do a lot of jogging, you might injure yourself in this kind of a way. If you do a lot of weight training, you might injure yourself in that kind of way. So the point is, it's, it's really quite diverse. So I think your approach, which you seem to be saying, is you're doing a suck it and see approach. You're just trying, trying it out and seeing if you like it. I think that's the best way to go. And if you decide to do mantra your whole life, I mean, why not? If you love it, why not? And if you like to want to blend in a couple other things here and there, and it's useful, why not? I think it's good. That's how I look at it. You know, that's how I look at it. You don't have to have many, many different approaches. You can just do the one. Yeah. Christina, can you talk about hand position? Yeah, do you want to elaborate on that question, Christina? Yeah, I'm just, um, is there a certain way, um, uh, feeling that you get in your hands when they're in the position that's the most advantageous for the type of meditation that you're doing? Or is, are there just certain mudras that you do that create the feeling? Are you creating the feeling or are you feeling the feeling that's already present and the mudra comes from that? Because yeah, some people even with their hands open or down or maybe you know, with their fingers like this or like this, is it different for different types of meditations or, or, or what? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Actually, 
Mudra, yeah, sometimes means hand position. It can it can mean a lot of things. It's another one of those annoying words that means, well, annoying if you want one meaning for everything. But I like the diversity of meaning myself. But it, in a certain sense, any way you hold your body could be seen as a mudra. You know? mm-hmm. um, uh, for example, including your hands. So a smile, you know, is if you're doing it for that purpose, is sort of a mudra, isn't it? And in that, and so so on. In certain traditions, sure, there are certain, you know, little things like this. You've probably seen that, right? This is a classic thing. Mm-hmm. The thumbs touching. You don't hold it up like this. You put it in your lap, you know. But um, I'm just showing you, of course. And uh, other times, you know, there's all sorts of mudras like this. You've probably seen, right? Or just folding like that. As this one, of course, you know that scene. Um, mm-hmm. Prayer, right? There's this sort of thing. You mm. know. There's this pointing at the ground, you know, whatever it is, pointing up. And you see it actually in all kinds of iconography. If you ever look at um, Christian iconography also, very often the figures are holding their bodies in some sort of a fashion, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question is very interesting. What comes first, the chicken or the egg, the mudra or the, or the state? Well, uh, it can go either way, I think. It can go either way. There are some... Uh, if you want schools of thought that say that you, you sort of can spontaneously manifest certain mudra in certain stages of the awakening of the kundalini or shakti transmission from your guru or something like this there are certainly things like that right if you ever see uh people on like the the christian tv channels or if you're yourself are uh going to sort of have ever been to or go to certain kind of christian services you know people put their hands up right They've got different mudras like this. They're putting their hands up, which is a sort of a way of showing all kinds of things, you know, bliss, joy, praise, surrender, exaltation, etc. They're doing that kind of thing. There's all different kind of ones that they're doing. And you'll see that if you, you know, if you go to certain kind of Christian churches, it's very similar actually. And it's the same thing. The Shakti is flowing, the spirit is flowing and their body just starts to, you know, they start to, but what's happening? Are they scripting that from what they're seeing around them? Or is it moving it? It's just maybe putting the hands up itself, kind of inviting a certain kind of opening of the body. Uh, it, it can be argued, I think, either way and can probably happen either way, I would say. Yeah. Now, of course, there are certain um, reasons they say why you put your hand like this and you touch the two thumbs to do with you know, the circuitry, energetic circuitry of the body. Some systems have that kind of an idea of energetic circuitry. That's why you do that. Um, and that's not common to all systems, but certain systems have that. So the idea being that this will have an effect on something. This will have an effect on something because you're closing certain channels or connecting certain channels, etc., which will have an effect on the body. That is, as you, as you well know, of course, I know you know this, but um, th- these sorts of things are said to do that. So there are mudras for, you know, warding off evil. <laughs> we have it actually in... Um, in Britain and Europe and so on, where I am right now, this sort of like evil eye, right? So yeah, I think you can go. I can go either way. It's interesting to experiment actually when you're meditating. You see what happens. Oh, sometimes you find yourself wanting to take a position. What's it like? Mm-hmm. And of course, you can Google all that if you want to know what do mudras mean. Hand mudras. You just type hand mudras. And in fact, there are even ways, very specific ways of sitting in meditation, like the seven points. Uh, that you see in certain Indian and Tibetan traditions where you have, you sit in, you sit in lotus, you have your hands typically like this, or they could be uh, like that. 
I suppose I could show you. You can see this on Google as well. I'll save you the bother. So, uh, can you see me? I don't know if you can. So you could sit like this, this kind of position, and then you have your hands like that, or you might have your hands like this. You sometimes see that. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Uh, mm -hmm. You're lifting up in that way. Your spine is long. Your chin is tucked. Your eyes may be half open, very commonly done. The tongue on the roof of the palate, etc. So in other words, you, you get into these sorts of positions and they're supposed to be conducive to certain energy or channel work. Believe it or not, that's, that's present in certain traditions. They have that way of looking at things. Yeah, sort of, not everyone does, but they have that. So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Uh, is that uh, helpful at all? Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Anybody else? Oh, I think that Eleanor actually had her hand up for a while. I see you as well, uh, Lilac. Eleanor, would you like to say something? Um, sorry, I was pushing the wrong button. Uh, I wrote it down, and it's a question I have about um, may you be free from suffering. Because I have a chronic disease, because the person I was thinking of has a life-threatening disease, um, their suffering from that particular condition is not going to go away, neither is mine. So mm -hmm. I think to language it in a different way, I just feel like it's important to be able to integrate the suffering into one's experience as opposed to eliminating it. It's, you know, whether you background it, whether you, you know, there's all these different techniques that you can use, but I think the integration of the reality of that suffering for somebody who's hungry, who doesn't have a home, who has cancer, who has MS, those things just aren't gonna go away, you know, through meditation. But we can change our attitude and POV, our, our Anyways, we can't change the situation always, but we can change our relationship to the situation, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Or am I just being completely delusional? I don't know. Yeah, I can't speak to I'm that done. last part. <laughs> well, that was just me being funny. I know, I know. Ellen, Ellen and I know each other, by the way, so I'm, just to give you some context, I'm not, I know she's not being delusional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, of course, that's a very excellent point. What does free from suffering mean? What does free from suffering mean? And the causes of suffering. In this context, it's something quite specific. It doesn't necessarily mean um, free from any bad situation or bad circumstance, as you know. Um, it's possible. You know, let's say a plane's delayed and you've got 100 people sitting in the terminal the degree to which they're suffering from that condition of having a plane delayed is different across the entire hundred people. S situation is the same, circumstance is the same. Their plane is delayed, different uh, level of suffering in relationship to that, which is what you're saying to do with that. Suffering in a certain sense, free from suffering doesn't mean, as you, as you say, it's that bad things don't happen or that pain goes away. Sometimes it doesn't go away. Sometimes you can't make it better. But in some way it's the, uh, the way in which, as you, as you correctly say, the way in which you relate to it, something to do with the inner reactivity, something to do with the inner friction in the system. Of course, 
it's very easy to be binary with this and to say, well, either you're completely so spiritual and you're so passive that bad stuff happens and it just flows in and it flows out and everything's fine. It doesn't hurt. Or I don't want to be like that because I'm going to change my circumstance. The fact is that they're two, they are not mutually exclusive. It's perfectly reasonable. Um, to attempt to optimize, and in fact, I don't think you can do anything other than attempt to optimize the situation, try and make things better, don't you? Uh, but at the same time, one can work with one's relationship to the circumstance. And that does two things. Number one, it reduces the degree to which you're suffering because of the bad thing that's happening. And number two, it frees up IQ points to improve the situation, if it's possible to do that. For instance, if you're totally racked in suffering, very hard to be creative and think of some way out or do something, act proactively on the negative circumstance. But if you can relieve a little bit your own sense of trappedness or hookness in regard to it, then you actually probably have a little bit more IQ points coming back to you uh, to be creative and act on the situation. I think that's the general idea. I mean, it's very technical in this sense. Suffering is ignorance, um, basically, it's sort of born from ignorance of craving and aversion, fear of death. That's sort of, that's the traditional route down. <laughs> that's the cause of suffering. It doesn't matter whether it's a good situation or a bad situation. Uh, good situations can cause suffering too. You have the wonderful situation, but now it's, how long is it going to last? Now you've got to hold on to it. Now you've got to protect it. Inevitably, it changes. So even good situations are a source of suffering in this, from this technique's way of looking at it. Actually. So it's sort of, uh, as you correctly say, an attitudinal thing, I think, or a relationship to circumstance, as opposed to the specifics of the circumstance, which themselves can be quite awful. I think that's the idea. Michelle saying, I noticed I had a harder time keeping my focus on the neutral person or group since attention and emotion are intrinsically linked. Do you have any suggestions for holding attention on more neutral objects? That's interesting. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's, do I have any tips to help that? I think the only tip I have is simply repeating the technique, continuing to practice, really. There's something, there are ways of working with neutral people, which, can, which are in a certain sense, less inhibited by people you know. You can just wish wonderful well wishing on them because there's no threat to you. <laughs> it doesn't matter to you in a certain sense. So there are ways in, I think, that uh, you're like um, the, the Father Christmas or Santa Claus of well wishing on these unsuspecting people. And they're neutral, so they don't even know you're doing it. So you can sort of be hiding behind your hand, wish, well wishing to all these neutral people. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite fun to do it. But... Actually, in terms of focused building the concentration or the staying power, uh, it really is a case of just repetition. And then, of course, when you create that container, very often, more and more as you get better at it, the positive feeling comes. And then that become, you can ride that positive feeling, even for a neutral person. Very interesting to do that. It's, I like to do it in, uh, in airport, um, airports or immigration queues. And you're standing at LAX for thousand hours waiting you know waiting 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 there's a big plane from australia comes in five minutes before yours and you get to the hole and it's just like 
uh, but anyway, that's I guess that's a particular circumstances I, I'm not facing for quite some time. But I like to do it then because you're sitting there and there's all these people and you don't know who they are and it's sort of boring, nothing else to do. And so it's nice to do this sort of practice in a time like that. I find it quite interesting. I'm just reading these out. If anyone, any of you who are reading out want to say anything more about it, just unmute yourself. I Susan's saying, I found the equanimity meditation shifted me internally. Something released and I felt more ease and spaciousness around personal responsibility. Really helpful. Well, that's very interesting. Brianna, I had a similar experience as Susan Madrid. I found the equanimity portion to evoke feelings of liberation and empowerment. Interesting. You want to say anything else about that, Brianna? You're welcome to. I have to unmute in two places. I'm, I mean, I don't know if, if it's kind of self-explanatory, but it's just like, I can only do what I can do, right? For other people, and then also for myself, as far as I can think about it, think about it, think about it. Then the empowering portion comes in, the actions, my actions can control my happiness and their actions can control their happiness. So it's empowering for whoever the subject is of the meditation. And then also liberating, I think too, because it's like, we can all be free to have control of our lives to some certain regard, right? Talking about the suffering that you're talking about earlier, maybe we can't control the exact circumstances or maybe we can only control them to a certain amount, but then it's, there's just a certain letting go in the equanimity aspect of it of like, yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you. I sometimes think of that equanimity one as the M night Shyamalan plot twist at the end of the Brahma Viharas. It's the I see dead people plot twist, <laughs> you know, cause you're doing all this, uh, may everyone be happy. May they be free from suffering. May they have, you know, good fortune and ever increasing happiness and so on. And then, and then there's this M. Night Shyamalan plot twist. For those of you who don't know, which contextualizes, it's the wisdom part of the, of the you know, compassion. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan is a direct movie director. He directed The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis in it. He's famous for, um, well, he's famous for a few things, but one of the things he's famous for is doing these sort of plot twists you didn't see coming. And the plot twist at the end of Sixth Sense, cover your ears if, you, if you've never seen the movie because it's going to spoil it for you. Spoiler alert. Okay. The plot twist is that uh, they think this little kid is the one seeing the dead people. It turns out he is seeing dead people. And guess what? Bruce Willis is dead. <laughs> so it's like, whoa, we thought he was alive the whole time. And it turns out he was really dead. And that's this like, whoa, it totally recontextualizes everything that came before. It's the N. Mike Shyamalan kind of plot twist, right? So I kind of think of the uh, equanimity as being the M. Night Shyamalan plot twist of the Brahmi Biharas. That's a non-standard interpretation though. Hi, uh, this is great because it's in the same category. It's, in, it's with the equanimity. So I really like when you described it as feel what is going on without push pull, because I feel like I can relate to that. Uh, I really, struggled with it when it was described as like um yeah limiting your ability to help people because i guess like part of the reason i was really interested in this one with you was like i feel like we need 
more of the loving kindness in the world, more compassion, more empathetic joy. And then maybe when we get a lot better at that, we could then get better at the equanimity, but it doesn't seem like the world needs that last one right now. But this is, this is just my own reaction to it, you know, that like, uh, and so I, I like that it's also like the wisdom. So now I'm like internally going like, okay, that's the one I really, that I'm having the strongest like negative reaction to, I, I need to investigate that. Um, because I also was wondering what it meant when, so that's like the first part of the question. The second part would be, what does that mean in the first layer when you're saying, I release, like, I'm, yeah, I'm not responsible for my own actions or how, like, that separation of my well wishes are dependent on, let me get it right, that, uh, uh, that my wish, my, my happiness is going to be influenced by my actions, not my well wishes, because when it's the same person, it's my actions and my well wishes, and I found that confusing. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, very, very interesting, I think. And um, yeah, that last phrase, I mean, like I said, it's interpreted in many different ways, but I can sort of tell you how I think about it from when I'm working with myself, with that layer. It's the, when, I, when I see that, you know, you're the heir of your karma, or I'm the heir of my karma, the true heir of my karma, meaning essentially that this is my situation. I'm in this situation through whatever means, certain degree, my choices, certain degree, stuff happens, you know, you might inherit uh, a susceptibility to a certain illness from your parents, right? You may also inherit uh, a baby face that as you age, to the consternation of your friends, you appear to remain 25, <laughs> right? So you get kind of dealt a certain hand, you know, and of course, uh, certain this is the karma part, right? Karma is one of them words that means a lot of different things. And some people have used the word karma to mean that if you're having a bad time, you deserve it. Must have been in a past life. You did something bad and now you're paying for it. Uh, that is actually a valid, valid as in, well, valid. It is an existing interpretation of karma. It's, that's an interpretation. That's there. Or you're born into a low-class situation. You're born in, you know, into this caste, for instance. And your karma, which can also mean duty, is to... Uh, perform the function of that caste or to do that job of being that strata of society. That's what you're born into and that's where you should stay. Um, the best you can do really is build enough merit to through perhaps donating to monks or do something like this in order to maybe get a level up next time. In fact, certain uh, traditions also say that if you're born as a woman, then it's a lesser birth. In fact, in some languages, the word for a woman is lesser birth. And the idea being that as a lady, you're not in as good a position as a man. And so really what you should, the best thing you can hope for, well, not the best thing you can hope for, but something you should really aim for when you're done in the kitchen, that is, is to accumulate enough merit to maybe next time come back as a man. And then you can really have, have the, better, the better situation. So all of this, are, um, all of these are interpretations of the idea of karma that have existed in different situations and still exist in different situations, different cultures and in different people's heads. Uh, this idea of what goes around, comes around, or you get what you deserve or et cetera, et cetera, right? Well, if you're ill, it's because you brought it on yourself, maybe with negative thinking. We have that idea, I think, in the new age, positive thinking movements, um, et cetera. So I don't think this is unfamiliar to anybody. Maybe you've probably all encountered these sorts of strands of ideas. 
Um, and but that's not always what karma means. Sometimes karma just means the cards you dealt. Sometimes karma means um, uh, the actions you do. That can also mean karma. Uh, cause and effect it can mean in, in the general sense and in the specific sense. So it really ha it means a lot of different things. Actually, karma is from the Sanskrit kur, which means action. That's what it means. And so, uh, in terms of, well, what, it means all the other things as well, but that's its etymology. So I tend to think of it anyways, that this is the hand I've been dealt, probably some degree to my own choices and other degree just stuff happens. And my happiness depends on my actions and not on my well wishes. So I can sit here wishing for things to be better and hoping for things to change. But really within my, the degree to which I'm able, I can make choices through um, perhaps positive action, the degree to which I'm able. Um, maybe I can do my meditation practice as a way of, in a certain sense, relating better to the situation, improving my, my experience of the situation I'm in, as well as attempting to improve my situation. In fact, I think it's the momentum of the organism to improve conditions. We're always improving conditions. Even when we're totally passive to a condition, it's because I think we're trying to optimize our relationship to it. If I can just be surrendered and passive enough, maybe it won't hurt as much, or maybe it'll leave me alone. That's actually also a high level negotiation. I call that a high level negotiation with life. This idea that if you can just get spiritual enough, things won't bother you anymore. So, um, so I'm not absolutely not saying that if anyone's in a bad situation, they deserve it necessarily. I'm not necessarily saying that. Just saying that if you're in the situation you're in, you're in the situation you're in. That's how I think of it for myself. Uh, here I am in the situation. And then accepting that, I'm the true heir of my karma. This, I am in this situation. And what am I gonna do? How am I gonna relate? What am I gonna, you can even just reacting differently or approaching it differently in some way. So it doesn't always work, you know, in the same way that you can try, you know, you get sick, sometimes you get better, sometimes you die. Same thing. You can't always make things better. Sometimes you have a rough time. So I think that's kind of what it means. And because it's twinned with or linked with the other three, which is the well-wishing, I want to have a nice time myself for myself because we're dealing in that sphere, right? I don't want suffering. I want to reduce suffering and the causes. I want to be free from suffering for sure. And I want my situation to prosper and be good i want that stuff and i everyone else wants it too everyone else wants that for them as well um, but we're all heirs of our karma so i think there's this sense in which the compassion and the loving kindness and the mudita and the equanimity they're part of the same mix they're part of the same recipe any one of them by themselves is a little out of whack i think but together it, it forms a holistic picture that's kind of how I think of it. Um, does that make any sense at all? Useful at all? Uh, yeah, I think I have to, I have to think on it some more because I think like just with what's on my mind, it feels like, like the, the one that I would want to teach later. You know, like yeah. if I wanted, if like, cause just because personally, I'm really interested in how to like motivate people, right? Or how to, like I'm much more interested in the first three right now because I think they're more needed right now. And then I would want to come back in and be like, oh, also before you get too caught up in that. So now you've gotten yeah. good at those, but before you get too caught up and attached to that and introduce suffering because you maybe can't do some things you want to do, let's learn about this one. 
Yeah. As opposed to like, oh, I'm just going to focus on this one. But that's obviously where I'm thinking about it and, and, yeah, yeah. and angling. Um, but I think that that clarifies some some stuff. That's very, very smart. And of course, sometimes you rush in to try to help and you make things worse. <laughs> but you rush in, you're, you're grabbing the person by the lapels. Do you accept my assistance? <laughs> Why won't they? You know, no. Yeah, so it's the case. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thanks, Richard. That's cool. I saw Lilac's hand was up. Is, it, is your hand still up, Lilac? I just noticed a sneaky thing that I did in the last bit when we were asked, when we were wishing a person that is a frenemy slash enemy. Mm-hmm. So um, what I did, my mind was going, I wished him to be happy so that he leaves me alone and is nice to me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's, and even when I wasn't saying it out loud like that, I think underneath it, I was feeling like, yeah, wishing him to be happy is going to result in that. And I think that's, I then felt like that's not what this practice is about. This is not me being purely wishing this person happiness. Um, so yeah, maybe I just wanted to share that because it's a new practice for me to, I mean, I've done it very briefly sometimes, but it's it, to sit with it for this long, it's very complex to concentrate on the ideas as as well as being meditative mm. it's it's um very new mm. territory for me so there's all sorts of things underneath that are happening so layered and yeah so i just wanted to share that's very cool that's very interesting yeah it, it is uh fiddly at first i think um it is fiddly at first compared to other sorts of meditations uh, there are fiddlier ones Certainly, there are fiddlier ones out there. <laughs> Fiddly meaning complicated, like you say. Uh, it's like a lot of things. When The more you get used to it, the less um, effort it takes to perform the maneuvers, of course, just like driving a car. Uh, but yeah, actually, I think that's not an entirely unintelligent observation you've made there, that maybe if your professor was a happier, more peaceful sort of a person, he'd be nicer, she would be nicer for you to be around. Yeah, probably that's the case. <laughs> so it's fine, I think. I think that's quite reasonable. If everyone in the world was happy, peaceful, at ease, would the world be a nicer place? I don't know, but I could speculate. And if I had to speculate, I'd say probably it would be at least somewhat nicer. As we know, hurt people hurt people. Isn't that the cliche? Hurt people hurt people. Not only, but uh, an awful lot of that is displaced pain, isn't it? Of the way injury to each other and so on. So probably you're onto something, actually. That's great. Alex says, I wish for my enemies to become enlightened so I no longer have to deal with them. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes, I, sometimes I'm doing that when I say, you know, may so-and-so be peace, uh, happy, may so-and-so be peaceful, may so-and-so be safe, and so-and-so, so-and-so be at ease, far away from me. <laughs> May they find a wonderful place somewhere else and have a thriving life with many joyful experiences and lots of prosperity somewhere where it's not directly in my eyeline. Yeah. The the, the funny thing is, right, 
the process of acquiring a technique like this and learning it brings up all these reactions, right? All these things, all this sense in which holds sense of, oh, if they're succeeding, I'm not succeeding, or if they're happy, what about this? And so on. brings up all these things. Where are these things that are inside of you? So the process of developing the technique, it's not as if, you know, you, you're either doing it in totally blissed out state and, or, or you're just getting towards that. The working through what comes up as you're, as you're applying the technique, seeing what's coming up, noticing what's coming up, uh, refining perhaps some of the ways in which you're responding by seeing it. Actually itself is, I think, at least half the ticket price, worth half the ticket price. So it's so, so useful and so beneficial. Uh, I think it would be quite possible, in fact, to sit for a long time with this technique, not feeling the, if you want, the states you're kind of aiming for um, in terms of the technique, and it still be enormously useful and illuminating. I think purifying, maybe whatever, freeing. I, I've certainly found that to be the case for lots and lots of techniques that I fail to uh, demonstrate or yeah, I fail to demonstrate the, res the sort of uh, ideal of the technique, but in performing it, so much interesting and useful things are occurring along the way. The states that you're bringing up are a means to an end, incidentally, they're a means to an end. Uh, these states are, are not the end of the story, they're just what you're sort of, sort of cultivating in terms of these attitudes, if you want, you're cultivating in the practice but they're only a means to an end, a means to the end being, as Greg was asking, you know, the way in which you're relating to things, essentially beneficial to you, off the cushion, in good circumstances, bad circumstances, etc. Being able to do a little better, a little less suffering, a little more fulfillment, more, a little more skill, a little more insight, a little bit more service, these sorts of things. Well, yeah, some people are saying in the in the chat here, very interesting to observe the feelings, thoughts, sensations that arose within each layer of meditation. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Hello, um, thank you for that. Um, I guess this is both a report and a question kind of coming out of that, which is that kind of from your introduction I sort of expected to either be feeling the good lovely yummy vibes or perhaps not be able to access them and just sort of practice and um, what actually happened was the kind of good vibes came um, but with them came quite a lot of I suppose pain actually sort of like oh god um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what that might be as an experience because I was I don't know I'd been expecting to feel a little bit smug perhaps and that was so not what happened that's interesting was there a particular was that ubiquitous across all of the practice or was it in particular in one aspect of it pretty much I mean even with the neutral person which I was expecting to be a bit of a holiday actually very quickly, I wasn't feeling neutral about that person at all. Um, so, yeah, I would say fairly ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Was the pain in... Uh, um, can you say something a little bit more about the pain? 
kind of um gosh sort of a pain at i suppose imagining the suffering so and so might have gone through or um do you know what i don't know it was all very kind of <laughs> yeah but not like not horrible pain not like anger or like pissed offness just sort of weepy in general mm -hmm. yeah i think that's very fascinating uh and i can i can comment on that that's you could say one of the faces of the diamond of compassion <laughs> what is compassion what's a barrier to compassion one of the barriers to compassion is an unwillingness or a reluctance anyway or an aversion towards feeling what you're describing the pain to relate to somebody means to open yourself to that when you walk past a homeless person if you really empathize with them in a certain sense you're feeling some degree of what it's like to have that kind of suffering that's why compassion is sometimes said to be feeling the suffering of the other person as as yours. It's got that feeling to it. And that's also why if you go through a very difficult situation in life, say you are diagnosed with an illness or you lose a loved one or you have some kind of bad suffering. One of the consequences of that can be that suddenly you're in the club, you're in the cancer club or you're in the lost a child club. There's a whole bunch of other people who are similarly afflicted or have had similar difficulties. And in a certain sense, once you've been thrust into it, there can sometimes be an availability an empathy for others who've been in that similar situation. You've got time for them. You've got space for them. There's something about the pounding of, difficult circumstances on the human heart that can release the sort of juices of compassion, particularly for those who are of a similar level. That's why they, they sometimes say that life tenderizes the heart. When you go through ups and you go through downs, one becomes a little less smug, as you correctly say. It's not so much sitting on your high meditation mountain, wishing everyone was as happy as you, <laughs> something like that. It's uh, in a certain sense, uh, being able to witness or relate to or experience some sort of your own response to their difficulty and suffering. It's a crucial part of compassion. Without that, you're right, it is, it is sort of smugness in a way. It is sort of smugness. It's all very well and good to be to sit apart, wishing them well. But uh, really, when you think about uh, free from suffering and the causes of suffering, of course, you're going to think about the suffering. And that's part of it. So love is a multifaceted diamond and loss, suffering, difficulty are there are facets of that diamond. And when you open your heart in that sense, you're going to feel or you're going to be able to feel all of those different aspects. Yeah. That's part of that's part of what compassion is. That's part of what compassion is. Okay, cool. That's, um, that's helpful. Thank you. Because people are suffering. 
people are having difficulties. It's not very nice for them. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I just wanted to give a comment and a little bit of a report, I suppose. I've done some other um, loving kindness type practices and I really, I think I also struggled with this thing that Rosalind was talking about feeling the suffering of the world so intensely, like it's almost like a pain, really just how Rosalind described it. And what I found was interesting was adding this equanimity piece towards the end really, really helped me with that. Um, and that was not something I had done before and it really changed the whole experience in a really profound way for me. Yeah, so I just wanted to comment that. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Would you like to comment on how it changed the experience for you? Is there something specific you, you could say or? Well, giving, adding this part of equanimity to it, it's a bit hard to describe because it's like a really subtle feeling state change i suppose but maybe there was like this kind of before when i did not add the equanimity piece at the end was like oh everyone why are you suffering so much i wanted to like kind of fix them <laughs> you know like uh, and but with the equanimity piece it kind of put the emphasis away from me having to do all these things and putting so much weight on me, you know, kind of. And yeah, so the equanimity really helped with that, lightening the load, maybe you could say. Mm. And uh, it was a really great approach for me. Mm. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's the equanimity piece. Partly it does contextualize your well wishes, your power and your responsibility. <laughs> Anyone who's ever had a loved one go off the rails into say addiction or just self-destructive behavior, for example, I think is acutely aware of how difficult it can be to care about somebody, but be powerless to help them. <laughs> Not easy. Yeah. And I think actually in each of those layers, there is that equanimity phrase. I mean, it has many meanings depending on where you're at and what you receive from it, I suppose, but it has quite a significant and different tone. It's sort of the plot twist. It's the M. Night Shyamalan of the plot twist, the sixth sense, I see dead people plot twist of the Brahma Viharas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the way out of the, I think, uh, spiritual narcissism of the do-gooder. It's my responsibility to save you all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, so Tom Thank sees you. dead people, you could say. Tom, you've had an moment. <laughs> I chose my daughter and I found that really hard. I found that that actually really hard to um, say that you know her happiness depends on her actions um when she's so young 
um, as well. And and just as you were talking, then I wonder as well, you know, if you've chosen somebody that's really ill, say got cancer or, you know, something's happened in their life that, you know, is out of their control. Is that sort of rose that in me, that sort of spiritual bypassing of, of their situation and um, how can you bring equanimity to that, I guess. Mm, that's very interesting. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by spiritual bypassing in this in this context i guess of um it's out of you know it's sort of um not acknowledging their suffering i guess or not really acknowledging that they're really in this place or um you know their real world sort of um experience that they're having at this time um that it's, you know, it's a result of their karma or, or it's a, you know, it, it's a result of their actions that they are suffering and like this, where, you know, that may actually not be the case. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's, I think that's very interesting. And it, it opens a can of worms when we, this word karma, actually. And I won't perhaps go fully into the can of worms, but maybe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So if I might re, re, rephrase what you're saying, just to make sure I have it. So the idea you're saying in a certain sense, when we say it's a consequence of your karma, you might look at someone and go, it's a consequence of their karma. The happiness is based on their actions. In a sense, it doesn't acknowledge the fact that sometimes people get a raw deal in life. They get dealt a difficult hand. Bad things happen to them in all kinds of ways. They're born into a bad situation or just stuff happens doesn't it and uh that that phrase could be seen to in a certain sense uh, ignore that somehow and put almost too much responsibility on them is it something like this yes yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think that's concepts like karma have which by the way karma is a word that has many different meanings many different meanings it can mean it can actually mean even duty your duty or your sort of role in life it can mean action, just simply action. Um, it can mean all sorts of different things. And of course, in, uh, that's in the Sanskrit and in, the, in, our, in our modern usage in English, which is it's a word that's made its way into English. Karma can mean what goes around comes around. <laughs> karma can mean that whatever's happening to you, you must apply to the sea for that at some point. I mean, this is a whole range of, of uses of the word karma that are not the same. Um, as each other and in a certain sense when we go through those different Brahma Viharas and we, we're acknowledging their suffering and then you might say well at the end here we, we just detach from it all and we say well it's not really my problem it's, it's your karma isn't it <laughs> it's like the get out of jail thing mm. uh, and actually And, you know, I think it, it, it could be argued that that's, it's been interpreted in that way in, so, in some contexts. Here, I think, what I think of, let's put it this way, what I think of when I think about that phrase is that if we take it to, or myself, take it back to the, yourself for a moment, you're the heir of the karma. In other words, there's many different causes and conditions and situations that have brought you to where you are now, including your own actions, certainly. But it's a whole web of causes and conditions that have created the situation you're in. 
you're the heir of that karma. Regardless of whether you like it or not, you're in the situation you're in because of a series of causes and conditions that have brought you to that place. And your happiness depends on your actions, in a certain sense, how you play the hand you're dealt, how you relate to the hand that you're dealt. That's how I tend to think of it in a certain sense, that yes, you're the heir of the karma in the same way that you inherit your genetic traits of your parents, or maybe their susceptibility to certain illnesses or diseases, or maybe their remarkable youthful looks into old age. You might get lucky. <laughs> you might get unlucky, right? You might have a baby face, but that's pretty handy when you're 60 and you look 20, right? Something like this. So you've got this sort of array of things. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to operate um, from, that, from that point of view? It's in, in certain sense acknowledging that there is a possibility of relating to the situation you're in. But it's so, somewhat easier, I think, to think of it from your point of view. But then when you think of somebody else, especially someone who's quite helpless or has difficult situation, difficult setup, um, it's the fact of the matter is it's not good for them. It's not pleasant situation for them. They are the heir of that. In other words, they are in that situation. It doesn't mean that they brought it about by a past life, although some people might believe that. Doesn't, you don't have to believe that. But for whatever has caused the situation they're in, they're in that situation. And so I think by itself, or rather it's not by itself, that phrase is contextualized by all the other previous phrases. So in a certain sense, the outcome I think would be a maximum poignancy of acknowledging and feeling that situation, seeing that situation uh, with also the context of the fourth Brahmavihara, which in a certain sense contextualizes your and their uh, possibilities in that situation. And remember, of course, that loving kindness is the sort of well-wishing, if you like, compassion is is feeling that suffering, uh, acknowledging that. But it also, as I mentioned, has that active element. One doesn't just sit there bleeding out. There is that sense of moving to help if one can. And sometimes one can't, hence equanimity. And ultimately, really, what can one do? Only what one can do. So I think as a set, it can get around that. But yeah, this is a common uh, way in which uh, ideas like, you know, it's your just desserts kind of thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's been used as a way of closing the heart and keeping people in certain positions. For generations, it's happened. Yeah. Meaning things like, well, you're born into a low caste, so you've got to stay in a low caste because you were born there, so you must have you know, done something wrong in previous life or something like that. Mm. Yeah. So that's sort of how I think about it. What do you think of that, Stacey? Yeah, it's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I guess what really landed for me in that is really more the focus around how they respond to what's being dealt, you know, rather than it being about what they've been dealt. It's about, you know, if you think of somebody, um, say, with cancer or late-stage cancer that learns to really embrace the death, <laughs> the death process, you know, versus someone that's really resisting it. I guess it's, yeah, and that you ultimately can't control or 
you know, you may be able to influence that in some way and, and assist them, but right. you can't, you know, it's up to them at the end of the day to come to that stage or that, that place within. Thank you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You're welcome. That's a great question, by the way, Stacey. This is the thorny business when we start to investigate these sorts of ideas, these sorts of topics, trying to make things better, <laughs> trying to feeling the difficulty people have or that we have. It's not a simple business. It's not just a say a few prayers and you know, everything's fine sort of thing. It's, it's, it's thorny. So it's really great that you brought up that. And spiritual bypass is absolutely so common to, commonly done. Uh, in these contexts. Uh, Hannah, you were saying? Yeah, yeah, I, I just um, um, yeah, wanted to, I had a little aha whilst doing the very first piece when I'm um, concentrating on uh, love and kindness, compassion, uh, equanimity for yourself, for myself, is that in the moment when I really truly felt it, that it was also automatically for everyone else there as well in the sense that it's of the same essence and it's not separated in the sense that when I was actually truly feeling it for myself, it was automatically also accessible for, for loved ones, clients and all beings. And that was just kind of, I felt that very strongly. It was just a bit of an aha really. And it's just such a cliche always to say, oh, you need to start with loving yourself. Yeah, that, that was that was really, really good. And also um, feeling that when I was in connection with the loving kindness for myself and at the same time making the wish for the other, that it was much more powerful. Yeah. So if I'd like kind of just make the wish for the other and somehow disconnected to that feeling for myself, it was much more conceptual wasn't such of a feeling yeah and so actually that's why I, I had my hand like on my chest a lot of the time because feeling it was within the feeling of myself that I felt then the the equanimity or whatever the love and the compassion for, for others and that was just quite a strong aha so thank you that was lovely yeah it's wonderful and, and then to the piece about the equanimity, yeah. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add that I actually find that incredibly empowering, and not only for myself, but also knowing that everyone else is also the highest of their own, you know, responsible for their own happiness. I think it's also giving them you know, a sense and empowerment, which is actually quite, uh, again, a positive action to create. Yeah. So. Thank you. Sometimes uh, I, you're welcome. Yeah, sometimes I say that the heart is the humanizing influence. The heart is the humanizing influence, meaning that when we connect through the heart, I'm using that as an umbrella term for all this, these sorts of, this sorts of themes. One of the effects can be that we begin to see or notice that other people are people. Very often, it's easy to reduce your enemy to their relationship vis-a-vis -vis you. They are, in a certain sense, 
limited by and perceived by, but limited in terms of your relationship to them by their effect, negative effect on you. But behind that negative effect is an entire human being, a whole person. Similarly, it is easier to commodify those that we love and relate to them only via the way in which they benefit or associate with us. Uh, in other words, we can commodify a person, reduce them to, if you want, a buffet. An all-you-can-eat buffet for your own enrichment. You know, subtly can be done. I want you for what I can get out of you, basically. Not acknowledging, perhaps, there's a human being behind there. And one of the classic, so therefore the heart is a humanizing influence. It moves, sometimes I say it moves a person, whether they're friend or foe, out of the dazzling light of projection into the clear light of intimacy. It's something that I, you will occasionally hear me say. It moves people out of, can move people out of the dazzling light of projection into the clear light of intimacy. Intimacy meaning a clear seeing, actually, but simply is what I mean by that word, clear seeing. So it's often said, actually, that all people want to be happy. All people want to have less suffering. Even cats and dogs want, to, want that. So there's something there in common between all people, at least, that we all want basically to be happy. We all don't want to suffer. We all at least have that in common. We all at least have that in common. And so there's something that can break down the barriers of separateness and open up uh, a different ways of relating to a person, when you begin to see more of their humanity, the more what you have in common by, by both being humans, it can open things up. And that's also part of the unhooking process. It's very interesting to, when you do a practice like this for somebody you're having difficulty with, and then you encounter that person again, and they're still stuck in that same thing that you guys have. But then you can secretly to yourself go, ha ha ha. May you be happy. May you be, so, you know, you've secretly been wishing well for them. So you're, you've got like, you're so much broader at that point. You're not trapped as much in the dance of opposition. They're still, that's what they're going to go for. But you've got all this other possibility. Totally changes things. Can do. It's like a secret weapon. There's a great story about that, which I may as well tell uh, from a guy who uh, I met in my teens, a sort of Christian mystic -y kind of guy called Graham. He often, so this is in a Christian context now. We're switching to a Christian context. So the language is Christian, but it's a sort of metaphorical story is how I'm using it here. He had a dream uh, and in this dream, oh, never mind the dream. Uh, he was speaking at various different churches. He'd go around speaking. And there was a group of people, three of them, he called them the Three Stooges. And they were uh, opposing him. Uh, they didn't like him. They had a newsletter about him. They'd show up to every one of his events, sit in the front row, writing down whatever he was saying. And they'd publish kind of stuff that he wasn't, you know, he's not right. Thing. They'd stand outside of every event with placards saying, don't come into this event. This person's not, not good. And uh, they're a real pain in the neck. 
or a pain in the side, I suppose we should say, if we want to be uh, Christian about it. This is a crucifixion reference. But anyway, and he then one day he had a dream and he was sitting on the on God's lap. So God's on his throne and he's sitting on it on the arm, I think, of the of the throne. I think is what it was. And they're having a great time. He often would dream about encounters with God. He was very much into dreaming. And then he, God said, you want to see something? And he said, yeah, of course. And then two angels brought this big block of marble out and put it there in view. And he said, wow, it was a really glorious, beautiful block of marble, sort of wonderful, incredible block of marble. And God said, and what do you think? And then Graham said, wow, it's really amazing. And God said, do you want to see something even cooler? Of course. Have at it, God. (laughs) So then these pairs of hands with chisels and hammers started coming and started whittling and chiseling and carving at this block of marble. Amazing disembodied hands, sort of pairs of hands sort of floating around like this, chiseling and so on. And it was just like, wow, really incredible to watch. And God said, well, encourage them encourage them so then graham says you know go for it uh, chisel well you know blessings to your chiseling and this sort of things i'm speaking now in the christian vernacular um you know all that sort of thing so he's standing on the arm of the throne apparently he's got hammers on god's head for balance and he's pointing come on come on come on do it you guys can do it all power to your chisels and all this sort of thing and they chisel, 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 chisel. And at the end, there was this beautiful figure of a human being, beautiful figure, incredible detail. And the hands went away. And, he's, and he thought it was nice before when it was just marble, but the result of the chiseling was just so beautiful and gorgeous. And he was just weeping with uh, joy and impressedness, I suppose, or and God said, what do you think? He said, wow, it's just so amazing. Do you know what it is? He said, no, I don't. And he said, that is how I see you. God said to him, that's how I see you. Wow. It was like, wow. He got the message. This beautiful sculpture. Beautiful. That's how I see you. It's this beautiful, perfect, sort of wonderful view. And he said, would you like to meet the sculptors. And he said, of course. And out from behind the statue stepped the three stooges. And then in the dream, Graham went, ah. And he woke up in the real world going, ah. Screaming. He woke up screaming with shock and surprise. And he was like, oh, I get it. I get it. So then he went into the office the next day and his receptionist says, you never guess what's happened. What's happened? The three stooges are booked again. And he goes, yes. And then he showed up to that event and he was driving by, and there they are in front with their placards, you know, Graham's bad, bad. Don't go to Graham. He's really awful. And he looked at them and was like, yeah, those are my guys. Those are my guys. So he parked up. They come in the back, put their signs up at the back. They sit in the front row with their row of pencils and ready to, write down all the bad things he's saying. And so he went to them and said, guys, guys, welcome, welcome. And they're looking at him thinking, what's going on? Is he on drugs? Is he been drinking? And he says, 
Do you want a cup of coffee? Do you want a tea or anything? So good to see you. The point was, they were very surprised. And anyway, shortly thereafter, they kept coming and then eventually they went away. But the point is that he transformed his attitude to them. They were still coming. They were still doing what they were doing. But he unhooked himself when he realized that in a certain sense, they offered a opportunity or a, yeah, an opportunity to relate differently, to, in a certain sense, broaden his view, to broaden his heart, to, uh, in a certain sense, rise above, you could say, their opposition, their pettiness, etc. Uh, now, it doesn't mean, of course, that you let people walk all over you or that you're passive or that you don't have boundaries, or you don't stand up for yourself. It's not about that. You still need to do those sorts of things. But it's about what happens inside of you. What's your inner state? Sometimes someone can say something to you in a conversation and you can stew on it for days. This is the sort of thing we're talking about. And certainly, if you are more open, uh, less activated, less trapped and hooked, you have much more IQ power, much more creativity, how to solve a situation, much easier to solve it if it can be solved. And if it can't be solved, if it's a situation where you can't do a great deal about it, well, you're not stuck in that hell, essentially. So this is part of the power of these practices, not only to do with wishing yourself well, wishing others well, and so on, who you like, um, but also you know, wishing those well who you don't like, and in a certain sense, it's a way of, it works on you primarily. These practices work on you. They do not replace skillful action in the world. They don't replace that, including standing up for yourself where you need to or helping others where you can. It doesn't replace that. But in a certain sense, it works deeply on, on what's going on inside of you. So, Well, I must congratulate you on today. That is a... tricky one <laughs> that's a tricky one there's a reason why most of the time this is taught very briefly because it's not a cakewalk this one it's not a cakewalk there's a lot to it and you'll practice very very well i think you should be very pleased with yourselves actually um i'm, I'm very impressed uh, i will send you a follow-up email afterwards with uh, some resources etc Feel free, please, to respond if you have any feedback, stuff you liked or didn't like, as well as it's also good, and that always will make things better. And also, I'll send you in that email a link to uh, the survey for next August 2nd. We're doing another one like this, which you're, of course, welcome to attend. And, uh, and if you've never been here before, the way it works is you get to vote on what topic you want to cover. So it's sort of... Uh, a vote. So I've listed several topics in this survey. You just click whichever one or ones you like. There's also a comment box if you want to say anything else. Like, what about this topic or something like that. And uh, yeah, that's what we'll do. So um, Guru Viking Meditation Club still happening every Wednesday for an hour. Lucky dip meditation. What technique will we do in that first half hour? Who knows? It's different each time. And then we have half an hour of discussion afterwards. So that's also happening. Uh, congratulations, everyone really amazing work. I'm super impressed. 